We're going to continue uh, with our study of Luke chapter 18. And in this chapter, what we're going to be looking at is the kinds of people that God wants in His family. Uh, we're going to be looking at a couple different stories that illustrate and describe what sort of people belong to the kingdom. And you can know a lot about a person by the kind of people that they sort of gather around themselves, right? The kinds of people that, that they associate with will tell you something about that person. Uh, in high school, right, there's often sort of one person who's really sort of cool or popular that everyone wants to be around. I love to tell you that that was me. Uh, it wasn't, but my senior year, at least I got to be in his crowd. So you ask yourself, okay, well, what did, uh, what did that tell you about him that he let me be a part of his, uh, a part of his crowd? Well, it told you that he didn't, uh, wasn't very good at calculus and he needed someone's help. So, um, but what we're going to be looking at today are the kinds of people that God has in his kingdom and what that teaches us about uh, the kinds of people that we should be and the kinds of people that God is forming us into. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. So if you're there, you can follow along in your Bibles or, uh, or on your smartphones or whatever. This is, uh, this is God's word to us. This is God's word to us because he loves us. So Luke chapter 18, starting with the first verse. And he told them a parable to the effect that they, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will he, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would speak uh, clearly and powerfully through your word to us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
So what we have in this passage are three stories. And at a glance, these stories might seem to be disconnected, right? They might seem to sort of be fairly random. But I think all three of these stories are are put here together uh, because they are tied to this theme of the question, who belongs to the kingdom? Uh, and, and we see this theme, this topic, introduced in Luke chapter 17. We didn't read that chapter, but if you'd flip back, what you would see is that at the end of Luke chapter 17, uh, there's this question of the kingdom, and Jesus describes the coming of the kingdom of God, and in particular, he, he talks about the kinds of people who do not belong to the kingdom of God, who will not receive the kingdom of God. And then we come to chapter 18, and what we see in chapter 18, then, is Jesus telling Three stories illustrating the kinds of people who do belong to the kingdom of God. These three stories are all part of this this question, who belongs to the kingdom. And you see this, at the last verse of each one of these stories sort of illustrates or points in that direction. You notice in verse 8, Jesus asks the question, will the Son of Man find faith on earth? Right. I think that's sort of pointing to or hinting at the second coming. Right? Is, uh, is the Son of Man going to find faith on earth? And then verse 14, at the end of the, the story of the widow, he says, I tell you, uh, or sorry, tax collector and the Pharisee, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, but rather the other one, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted again. I think Jesus is sort of pointing back to the coming of the kingdom when Jesus returns uh, and uh, and he's he's illustrating the fact that he's uh, he's demonstrating the kind of person that belongs to the kingdom. And then, of course, in verse 17, it's explicit. Verse 17, Jesus says, "Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child uh, will shall not enter it." And the reference there to kingdom of God forms an inclusio with the with chapter 17. Inclusio is just a fancy word that sort of means bookends, right? You, you've got the reference to the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 17, and then an explicit reference to the kingdom of God in Luke 18, verse 17, which sort of indicates that, that everything in between is part of a unit. So we have these three stories. Uh, in which Jesus is illustrating the kinds of characteristics the people who belong to the kingdom have. Uh, and, and what we see here, what's interesting, these three stories all have uh, protagonists who would not have been well-respected or appreciated within society, right? This is one of the other things that sort of ties these stories together, is that Jesus has chosen people to represent those who belong to the kingdom who would not have been expected within that society, right? Women uh, did not have standing in court. They were not well-respected. They were not uh, considered worth teaching, right? Rabbis would not give women their their time or attention um, because they were not considered uh, worthwhile within that society. Tax collectors were looked down upon as traitors, uh, and children, again, were also not uh, viewed as worth a, a rabbi or a teacher's time. Uh, children were not very well respected. And yet, Jesus uses each one of those three characters, person, people, even though they're very different, right, a diverse cast of characters, to demonstrate the kinds of people that God wants in his kingdom. And we're going to return to that at the end of our time together, but I point that out just to sort of illustrate there's a theme running through all three of these stories. 
So what we're going to look at, the three stories illustrate three different things. And the first is that God's people have hopeful persistence. The second is that God's people have repentant humility. And then the third is that God's people have childlike dependence. So hopeful persistence, repentant humility, and childlike dependence. So let's look at the first, uh, the first story. Um, God's people have hopeful persistence. What, what Jesus wants us to see is that we need to have hopeful persistence even in the face of oppression, difficulty, and struggle. Right? Luke chapter 17, which I, which I made reference to, describes a time in which there's going to be trials and tribulations and difficulty and suffering and tragedy. Right? Jesus is describing a time in the future, at least future from the perspective of the disciples, right, in which they are going to experience great difficulty. And then the very next thing he does is he tells the story of the widow and the unjust judge. And, and at the beginning of this story, right, he, he, we're told that he told this parable for two reasons. And, and the first is that uh, we ought always to pray. And then the second is that we ought not to lose heart. Always to pray and not lose heart. And I think the always pray indicates persistence, right? I don't think this parable is exclusively about prayer. I think Jesus is using prayer to illustrate persistence, right? And he says, uh, we told this parable so that we ought always to pray and then to not lose heart. In other words, to have a hopeful posture, uh, and of course, prayer, more than anything, perhaps demonstrates uh, hopeful persistence, right? If you, if you uh, struggle with prayer, you're not alone. Virtually everyone does. If you struggle to be consistent and faithful in your prayers, I do too. It's very common. And for that reason, prayer is, is sort of a good uh, sort of example for the sort of characteristic that Jesus is, is, is demonstrating, right? Hopeful persistence. Uh, because prayer often, when, when it's, when we're praying for something that we don't get a, an answer to right away, right, it's easy to be discouraged, right, and to lose hope, or just to, to sort of stop, uh, being persistent in those prayers, right? If you've, if you've had something that you've been praying for, for any length of time, you probably felt that experience of growing weary, and wondering whether or not God is listening. And, and thinking, you know, perhaps I'll just stop praying for this. God, God's not going to answer it, right? If, if you felt that way, you're not alone. I have certainly felt that way, uh, as well. And Jesus gives this, the story of the widow to demonstrate what faithful, hopeful persistence looks like. I had a seminary professor, um, who I think he was, he was an incredibly godly man, and he demonstrated this in his own life more than anyone else I know. He became a Christian, I think, in his early 20s. He had grown up in an atheist home in England. And he became a Christian in his early 20s. Uh, and for the next series of decades, he prayed faithfully for his parents. He had wonderful, loving, supportive, encouraging parents, but they uh, were atheists. They'd raised him to be an atheist. Uh, and, and when he became a Christian, he began a decades-long process of praying for them. And toward the end of, of their life, particularly toward the end of his father's life, his prayers were finally answered. I don't exactly know how many uh, years it was, but it, it was probably between three and five decades of faithful prayer on behalf of his parents. 
Uh, and then shortly thereafter, his father died, and his mother remarried, and she happened to marry a, a, an ungodly man, a man who did not treat uh, my professor well, and he who did not treat his wife well. And in fact, he was he was awful. He was violent. It was it was a terrible marriage, and yet my professor prayed for his stepfather, and prayed for another decade for his stepfather, and his stepfather. Uh, within nine months of his death, became a Christian and turned completely around. Uh, he said that he, he went from being violent, abusive, aggressive, and hateful to a kind, gracious, loving man. And he says, sort of in reflecting on that, he, he told us our class that when he would talk to his mother after his stepfather's death, what she remembered of his stepfather was the last nine months. It was that last period in which God had done something remarkable for him. And, uh, and I, I, I share that just to illustrate sort of what it would look like to have that sort of hopeful persistence in the face of prayers that God does not appear to answer. You can imagine what it would be like praying for decades for your parents and not seeing any hope or progress. And so, so Jesus uh, uses this widow to demonstrate. And of course, the use of the widow would have startled Jesus' audience. Uh, as I already mentioned, women didn't have standing in court. She's a widow, so she doesn't have anyone to advocate for her. It's not like she would have a husband who could advocate for her. She doesn't have her own standing in court. And yet she's, she's seeking justice from this judge. And Jesus uses a little bit of humor here. In verse 5, the Greek word for beat me down uh, is literally, give me a black eye, right? So this judge uh, is, is sort of reflecting on on this persistent widow, and he's worried that she's going to give him a black eye um, through her persistence, right? I, I don't think literally Jesus meant that she's going to become physically violent, but that's not the point. The point is, the judge, in, in spite of the fact that he's unrighteous, right, he respects neither God nor man, and it's a widow, so she doesn't have any standing in society, so it's not like he can sort of um, sort of do something for her and then get a favor back from her, right? She has absolutely nothing that she can give to him. And finally he says, okay, well, she's got me backed in a corner. She's not going to stop. Uh, I will give her justice simply for that reason alone, right? And what, what Jesus is saying is, look, if, if that unrighteous judge is going to give justice for this widow, how much more a God who loves you, who cares for you, who is just, who is righteous, who does actually des- desire good things for you, how much more can and ought you to trust in Him, to have the sort of hopeful persistence, knowing that God is just, is loving, is kind, is gracious, and does love you. And as I indicated, right, I, I don't think this story is meant to apply only to prayer. One of the commentators on this passage says this. He says, Jesus uses prayer to speak to the issue of what sort of people with what sort of character and commitments as well as behaviors are fit for the kingdom of God. Now, sort of a mouthful, but basically his point is Jesus is using prayer as an example of the sort of hopeful persistence that God's people ought to have in their lives. And I think verse 8, right, the mention about finding faith on earth points to the fact that this is not meant to, to focus exclusively on prayer. Prayer is a great example. Prayer is sort of the, 
the crucible in which our hopeful persistence is most tested, but we're, we're meant to have a hopeful, persistent posture in all of life. And the basis for that is the fact that God has acted and will act in our lives. Right? The hopeful persistence comes from the knowledge that God, that Jesus is coming again. That every injustice will be righted. That everything will be restored to the way in which it was meant to be. Right? There is a hope and a promise, or sorry, there's a promise um, that grounds this hope that Jesus is coming again. And that's why we can have this hopeful persistence. And that takes us to the second story, which is, which is about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And what we see here, again, just like in the first story, there's also two characteristics. Now, in this case, it's two characteristics of the negative example, right? That Jesus is addressing those who trusted themselves that they are righteous and those who treat others with contempt, right? And the Pharisee is an example, right? This, this, this parable is meant to apply to anyone, not just Pharisees, but Jesus is using a Pharisee as an example of someone who trusts in themselves that they are righteous and treats others with contempt. And so if you take a look at the Pharisee's prayer, right? If we look at it, you can see that it starts off pretty well, right? He starts off by thanking God. He starts off by indicating that he's not an, ador- uh, an adulterer. He's not an extortionist, right? Those are good things. We certainly wouldn't want him to be an adulterer. We wouldn't want him to be an extortionist, right? Those are, those are all good things. He, he talks about tithing and fasting, right? Those are good things too, right? Those are all good things. And it starts off well, but when you actually look at it, when you, when you study it a little bit more carefully, what you see is that he doesn't actually thank God for anything that God has done. He thanks God for things that he has done. And notice the use of the first person pronoun, right? I am not an, ador- an adulterer. I am not an extortioner. I am not unjust, right? And then he continues on. I give tithes. I fast twice a week, right? This is sort of what we might call a humble brag, right? He's, he's praying in such a way to elevate himself. And he sort of makes a passing reference to God at the beginning, a perfunctory sort of check it off the list. Yeah, this is, this is about God, but really it's all about me and all about myself. And notice, right, uh, how he refers to the tax collector. It's interesting. He doesn't say, um, you know, I'm not like a tax collector. He says this tax collector. You can imagine like, that they're there in the temple and he's like probably pointing to the guy while he's praying. I'm not like that guy right there. You can see the sort of contempt that he has for the tax collector. And he says, thank God that I'm not like him. And what Jesus says is that that is literally the exact opposite prayer that he ought to have prayed. What he ought to have prayed is, please, God, make me like him. Because he's the one who goes down to his house justified. He's the one who walks away from the temple forgiven and loved by God. Not the Pharisee. When we look at the tax collector's prayer, what is it that Jesus finds uh, uh, so 
um, commendable about the tax collector. Look at what he says. He says he does not lift his eyes to heaven and he acknowledges himself to be a sinner, right? Not lifting your eyes to heaven. That's the humility. And then uh, acknowledging himself to be a sinner, that's the repentance, right? A humble uh, repentance or a, or a um, repentant humility. The tax collector demonstrates uh, those two characteristics, right? So in contrast to those who, who uh, trust themselves that they are righteous and treat others with contempt, the tax collector does not trust himself that he is righteous. In fact, he knows that he is unrighteous and he doesn't treat others with contempt. And of course, we can see um, that, that what Jesus is saying is that th- for those who will be welcomed into God's presence, they will have this humble and repentant attitude and they will not be self-righteous or treat others with contempt. And of course, these two, right, the, the positive and the negative go hand in hand, right? If, if, our under, if, if we understand our lack of righteousness before God, that gives us a humility with others. Right? If we, if we really understand and embrace the fact that we come to God without any standing, without any righteousness on our own, right, that gives us a sort of humility that prevents us from treating others with contempt. Conversely, if we see ourselves as righteous, right, if we come to God trusting in our own righteousness, what that means is that we're always going to be uh, feeling like we need to justify ourselves. And, uh, you, you know, as most of you know, we lived in Alaska for a couple years. In Alaska, there's sort of this joke. Um, you only ever needed to be the second slowest person in a group, right, if you come across a bear. Uh, you don't have to be the fastest. You don't even have to be the second fastest. You just have to be the second slowest person, right? And I think often we sort of treat righteousness that way. When we, when we don't recognize that a righteousness comes from God, that it's through, from and through Jesus, when we're seeking to justify ourselves, we often look around and find the most unrighteous person in a group and say, okay, well, at least I'm not that bad, right? At least I'm not like them. I do this. I go to, you know, Bible study. I read, you know, I pray. I, I do this and that and so on and so forth. At least I'm not like them. I'm the second least righteous person in the group. And that's enough, right? But that, of course, is not how it works, right? What Jesus is saying is that we need to have a repentant humility. Uh, and that takes us to the final uh, story, right? That God's people have childlike dependence. And we see this story. The, the first two were parables. This is a, a real story, and it's linked with the two parables by the word now, right? Luke is, is sort of indicating that this story is connected with the previous two parables. And he says, now, um, these infants were bringing, uh, were being brought to Jesus. And the, the Greek word for infant there is a word that really sort of means like fresh out of the womb, um, right? Like brand new baby. Um, and, uh, and, and we see this, right? Luke emphasizes, not by use of that particular Greek word, but by emphasizing the fact that they were being brought to Jesus. Right now, perhaps there were toddlers, perhaps there were older children included as well, but at least these are children who are so new, so young, so utterly dependent that they are being brought to Jesus 
They are not coming to Jesus on their own. Right? And if you have had young children, if you have young children, or if you know anything about young children, right, you know that they are utterly dependent. They can't feed themselves. They can't clothe themselves. They can't change themselves. Most of our kids um, had sleep issues, right? So we actually had to train them how to sleep. You know, you think of a baby and you think, okay, well, what can they do? They can eat, sleep, and poop. Well, actually, not necessarily, right? Some children have real struggles eating, and they need to be taught how to nurse properly. Some children have real struggles sleeping, and they need to be taught how to sleep. Children are utterly and completely dependent. They offer no value, right? They don't contribute to, you know, my, my dad at the dinner table, he'd always ask us, you know, what did you do to, to, to add to the gross national product today? Um, <laughs> Children don't add anything to the gross national product, right? They have no value. They do not contribute. They are utterly and completely dependent. And this is the sort of person, this is what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom, right? In in the next chapter in in the book of Luke, we're going to see the story of the the rich young ruler. And at the end of the rich young ruler, um, where Jesus says, uh, you know, and the disciples say to him, you know, if he couldn't enter the kingdom, then then how could anyone enter the kingdom? And Jesus responds to them and he says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Right? That's the point. Right? You bring absolutely nothing. You contribute absolutely nothing. Right? The kind of people that God wants in his kingdom are those who know that the only way they can be a part of God's kingdom is if God himself brings them there. That's what Jesus is showing us by using children. Right? He is showing us that all our pretensions at righteousness, all our pretensions at thinking that we're worth something, that we're, we're great, that, that God wants us in his kingdom because of something that we have to offer to him because of how great we were, right? As I indicated, my friend, he, he, you know, he wanted me in his group because I could help him with calculus. Hopefully there was more than that, right? I, I know enough about him to know that, that he, he wasn't entirely, uh, mercenary in, in who he had in his friend group, right? But, but that was something that I contributed to him, right? But that's not the case with God. I mean, God delights in us. He loves our praise. He loves what we do for him, but, but he doesn't need it. There was no lack in God. And we don't bring anything that contributes to our own salvation. In fact, even the work, uh, even the good things about us, even the good work in us is work that God himself has done. If we look back just for a minute, uh, I, I forgot to mention this, right? The, the Pharisee in his prayer mentions all the good things about him, that he's not this, he's not that, that he does this, that he does that. Um, and, of course, I indicated that that was wrong because he was taking all the credit for it. It's not wrong to recognize good things about you that God is doing in your life and to be thankful for that, right? It's not wrong to sort of take a minute to think about yourself and, and to see how you've grown in holiness and righteousness, to see the ways in which you reflect God's beauty and character and goodness. That's not wrong, as long as you recognize that even those things are a gift from God and you give him the credit for it. So Paul in Colossians chapter 1, he says this, For I toil, struggling with all his energy, with all his energy, 
that he powerfully works in me. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, he says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? Within the, the, the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, we tend to emphasize the sovereignty of God and salvation, that, that God alone gets the credit for our salvation, for our justification. And that's absolutely true. Uh, and, and it's vital and it's so important. And there are Christian traditions that don't emphasize that. However, we're not the only tradition that emphasizes God's, uh, God's sovereignty within salvation. There are other traditions that emphasize that as well. But one of the things that I think sets us apart is the recognition that sanctification is also a work of God. Right? Sometimes we think of justification as what God does for us and then sanctification is what we do for God. But that's not wrong, or that's not right, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that both justification and sanctification, both the act of God saving us and the work of God in us to produce a holy and righteous life are His work, that He gets the credit for it. And I think that takes us back to this this final story, right? That God's people have a childlike dependence. If you look at your life and you consider the fact that you aren't as persistently hopeful as you think you ought to be or you aren't as um, repentant and humble as you ought to be. I think this final story that Jesus tells us brings things to a conclusion and shows us right that if you have a childlike dependent uh, dependence on God, if you are part of God's kingdom, if you've brought been brought to God's presence by God himself, if you have the childlike dependence that God is forming you into the sort of person who will be hopefully persistent and the sort of person who will have repentant humility. That the work of God in your life is creating the sort of person like this. Because if you have that childlike dependence, if you've been brought to God and are made a part of his kingdom... This is the sort of person that he is shaping us into. And so as we wrap it up, just a couple, uh, just one or two questions to think about. Are we the sort of people that demonstrate persistent hopefulness, repentant humility, and childlike dependence, right? Is that characteristic of us both as individuals, but then also us as a community, right? Would someone walking into this church immediately get the sense, wow, this is a community of people that have a hopeful persistence that is grounded in the knowledge that God has worked, is working, and will work in the world. Is this a group of people that are repentant and humble? Do they recognize that they need God's forgiveness? And do they extend that grace and forgiveness to others? And do they have a childlike dependence on God, recognizing that every good thing comes from God? And then the final question, uh, just to leave ourselves with, right? As I indicated, Jesus chooses characters that within his religious culture of the day would not have been respected, right? The, the widow, the uh, tax collector, and the, chi- and the children, right? We're all characters uh, were all people that would not have been respected within the, the religious culture, the Jewish culture of the day. And so we want to ask ourselves, do we welcome and embrace the poor, the vulnerable, and the socially despised? 
Are we a community where the people that Jesus describes that belong to the kingdom find a welcome in our midst? Uh, and, and I don't ask that question uh, assuming I know the answer. I think it's a good question to return to again and again and again and ask ourselves, if this is who belongs to the kingdom, do they have a place in our community? And if so, then that's great. And if not, then what do we need to do so that the people that Jesus says belong to the kingdom will find a welcome in our community as well? Let me close us in prayer. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for... Uh, these stories that you told, we thank you uh, for the way in which you revealed to us uh, who we are and who you are. Uh, we thank you that um, you are a God who delights to give us good things uh, and that um, you have promised us that you are working in the world, that you will come again, that you will bring everything uh, to completion. We pray that you would give us a hopeful per- persistence, a repentant humility, and a childlike dependence on you uh, as we uh, live in this world. We pray this in your name. Amen.